You know, I was reading this week about Thomas Edison, famous inventor. What's he famous, most famous for inventing? Anybody? The light bulb. Thank you. The teacher got it. Thank you. Everyone else has been out of school too long. Uh, he's famous for inventing the light bulb. He invented a whole bunch of other stuff. He worked with a bunch of, bunch of different people, and they worked together to invent all kinds of things. Um, it's amazing to see what he did, not just in, in all he did throughout his life, but how young he was when he did a lot of it. Much of his inventing, uh, his innovation, his development of his, really his, what was it called, that, um, the, the complex that he developed, his dad helped him buy that and build it when he was in his early 20s. He started inventing. Uh, on into his, and the light bulb came about, I believe he was in his early 30s when he pulled that one off. But what's amazing to me in reading about the light bulb and his invention of it, uh, other guys had, had worked on it before him, but weren't ever able to crack it, weren't ever able to figure it out. And I think there's a reason for that. Uh, and I think it boils down to perseverance. Because I've always heard that he famously said, uh, I didn't, you know, they asked him about inventing the light bulb. He said, well, I invented a thousand ways not to create the light bulb first. But it took him a lot more than a thousand tries to get it right. He tried over 6,000 different elements just for the filament in the light bulb, the piece that would light up. 6,000 different ones just for that one piece. That's not counting everything else. By the time they figured out it had to be vacuum sealed so that it would last longer, that was a longer process. The first time they created it and got it working, it lasted for five hours, and then it fizzled out. They thought they had done it. Yes, and then the thing went out, and they're like, well, I guess we've got to go back and try to figure this out again. And so they, they poured over all kinds of different things to, to, to make that work and light up for so long. He, what really fascinated me is in his notes, they discovered the... Um, materials that we use today for light bulbs, he thought of back then, but then put it to the side because they didn't have enough technology to figure out how to use it. And so he worked on all this and developed this and figured it out. He's, but just remember the filament, 6,000 different elements they tried and figured out and got to the one that worked the best. Uh, he said all of his colleagues... The guys who were trying to invent the light bulb, you know, who were competitors, the guys who worked with on his team trying to figure it out, he said every single one of them got discouraged and said we were never going to get this thing done. It was never going to happen. How many of you, if you were working on something like that and you had to try it just, the, let's just take the 6,000 number, you had to try something 6,000 different ways to get it to work, would you get discouraged about number 1,000? Maybe about number 15, I would say. But number three, right there. Let's be honest. Let's be transparent a bit. Number two, it didn't work two times. This must not be for me. we got to go somewhere else. God does not want the light bulb to be invented. Uh, but what he said, I've got it written down here. He says, I was never myself discouraged or inclined to be hopeless of success. He says, but I cannot say the same for my associates. Everyone on his team would walk into the office every day to work on this project, and none of them ever thought it was going to happen. When they get past number two, number three, number 15, number 1,000, and it's not working. And he says, oh, we've got to try this, we've got to try that. His perseverance led to the fact that we've got light bulbs here today. Really, the light bulb and the electric light bulb led to the fact that you have a phone in your pocket or your hand right now that lights up that would not have happened if he not, had not persevered back then. 
But that perseverance led to something that we all take advantage of today and don't even think about it because we take it for granted, all that perseverance that he took back then. What we're going to look at today, you know, when we talk about big faith and taking big faith leaps and having our faith turned on and not turned off in every area of our lives, and if you've missed any of these big faith opportunities these these last three weeks, you need to go online and check them out. They're all there. Uh, But the thing about big faith is it has to continue. A lot of times when we have faith and we encounter opposition or we encounter difficulty or we encounter what we perceive to be a closed door, we just immediately go off and do something else and the perseverance dies in the moment. But big faith, big faith is defined by its perseverance as we're going to see today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5 today. Luke chapter 5. If you're in the room and you want to use one of the Bible's on the rack, or you're at home and you took one home last time you were here. Uh, We're going to be on page 861 if you want to do that. But all the notes and scripture are also uh, on our website as well. Uh, Luke chapter 5. See, Luke chapter 5, Jesus is just beginning his, his public ministry. He hasn't even gathered all of his disciples to him yet. He's got a bunch of guys following him. He he's called out some of them, but he hasn't called out all 12 yet. And he encounters something as he's teaching, as he's preaching, he, he he's getting very popular. As we might say, he's going viral. Uh, it's right at the beginning and everybody's interested in what's happening. And so Luke chapter 5 starting in verse 17, he's not just caught the attention of people wanting salvation, he's caught the attention of some others as well. Verse 17, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, right off the bat, right, we see these guys uh, Jesus, we're going to find out in a minute, Jesus is teaching in a house. He's gone to a house to teach. People have, have piled into the house. They're, the house is so full, people are outside the doors. They're standing outside the windows trying to listen in. There's so many people here, but those people weren't the only ones there. It says the scribes and the Pharisees came, the teachers of the law, the really, really smart people. These were the religious elite. These were the uh, 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 upper class Jews of the time. And they came to check this out because they were the religious leaders. And so they thought they should know all the big famous teachers in the, in the land. But they had heard some things about Jesus. They had heard some things that they weren't too thrilled about Jesus. You know, if you've been in church for very long, you've heard the name Pharisees before. And that instantly pops something in your head as these are the bad guys. These are, the, these are the opponents. Even if you're not familiar with church, you've probably heard the term Pharisee before in, in a very negative light. Well, the thing about that that I find very fascinating is when you study these guys as, you know, us, you know, 21st century um, evangelical Bible-believing Baptists, they would have believed most of what we believe theologically. They would have agreed with us on the resurrection. They would have agreed with us on uh, that God speaks through prayer, that God speaks through Scripture. They would have agreed with us on predestination and free will and sovereignty. They would have agreed with us on angels and their existence and what they can do for God and what demons can do and what Satan can do. They would have agreed with us in all of these different areas, but where they struggled was that God would do something new 
in a way that had not been done before and through someone whom it had not been done either. They struggled with the concept that God would do something that they were unfamiliar with. And so here's this guy, Jesus, that they don't know anything about from a city that they're totally unfamiliar with. They thought he was from Nazareth, but he wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but they didn't know that at this time. They thought he was from Nazareth. They said nothing good comes from Nazareth. Nazareth is is a know-nothing town, and here he comes, and he's out here teaching and preaching and doing all this stuff, and people are getting healed, and he's saying stuff that is uncomfortable to them because they don't want to think about uncomfortable things. Um, I know none of you guys like to think about uncomfortable things, right? Or we don't see any uncomfortable subjects popping up on social media or popping up on the news. Uh, When it does, we tend to just scroll past or flip the channel or whatever. Well, Jesus was saying uncomfortable things. So these guys show up to where Jesus is teaching because they want to hear firsthand what he's saying, not so that they can defend him as a teacher of Scripture and of God, but so that they can use it as ammunition against him. So this isn't a new thing in our culture today. This has been going on where we try to you know, pick apart everything somebody says to use as ammunition for them, to use as an argument against them. Never mind somebody might misspeak. How would you like to be up here on this stage and have everything you say for 45 minutes recorded and put online for somebody to grab a hold of and throw back at you sometime in the future? I'll give it But here Jesus is, and these guys are there. And, and as we read this, I want you to notice, he knows they're in the room. He's not a fool that they're in the room. And Jesus is not one to be sensitive to potential offense when it comes to biblical matters. Many of us, I'm not going to point fingers, but many of us, uh, people who aren't here, people who, who aren't in the room or aren't watching our service online, other people, uh, tend to uh, say things that might be intentionally offensive because we know somebody who will be listening or somebody who will watch our post online. And we say it whether it's politically motivated or we try to throw some scripture in it just to make it spiritual. We say it just to get under their skin because we, we use it like, like a bullet trying to hit them instead of using it to try to point them to Jesus. And that's not the way Jesus uses it. His, his motivation always is to try to bring people to God, try to usher them in there and not try to slap them in the face to beat them down, but to point them to Jesus so that he can build them up. As, but Jesus knows these guys are in the room. And ultimately, some of these very guys will get saved because of his approach with them. And so look at this. Jesus is there, he's teaching, he's in the house. House is jam-packed full of people. Uh, Verse 18, behold, some men, uh, the gospel of Mark tells us it's four men, bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of, before Jesus. So some guys bring their friend on a mat to be healed by Jesus because they're hearing Jesus is healing people. And so they go to bring him, they get to the house, and it's packed. They can't get in. There's so many people, they cannot get in. But notice, 
in faith they went to Jesus and brought the man to be healed by Jesus. And healing did happen and healing still does happen. And so they bring him to Jesus to be healed. But notice that the door wasn't shut. It was just occupied. They brought him to Jesus and they did not encounter a shut door. They encountered an occupied door. And so their faith didn't stop at the doorway, even though they couldn't get in. They couldn't force their way in. I mean, if you're one person, you might be able to squeeze in. But when there's five of you and you're carrying a guy, there's no way you can get in. There's no, it's impossible. And so their faith didn't stop there. Their faith continued. And they said, oh, well, let's just climb on the roof. Back then, some houses had little stairs to get onto the roof. And they get onto the roof. Now, notice as well. This most likely is not any of their house. And they climb on the roof, and what do they do? How are we going to get to Jesus? Well, let's just start taking the roof apart. How many of you would think that? If that were you? Well, we can't get in, so let's just go up on the roof and start ripping it apart. And, and I don't know if you've ever, you know, been on in an attic, and you're trying to get to the right spot. Um, what way I picture it is, they get up there and try to guesstimate where in the house Jesus was standing and start peeling pieces apart and say, oh, that's the wrong one. Let's put this, come on back over here. And so they're probably ripping up several different parts of the roof to try to find the right spot to lower Jesus, or to lower the man in front of Jesus. And so they're doing all this and they're moving stuff around and they're trying to find the right place to do it. Now, I was thinking about this the other day and studying it and I had a thought about Jesus. You know, because Jesus is God, so he knows everything that's going on. He knew these guys were going to be bringing this, this paralyzed man that day. And I picture Jesus as he's teaching all of this. And he knows the door's over there and the guys can't get in. And the second that those guys have the faith, say, let's go on the roof, I picture Jesus smiling. Kind of like as a parent when your kid finally figures something out on their own and they do it without you having to tell them for the 500th time. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, good, he got it. And you praise it later, but they do it without you having to tell them. And so these guys come, and they do it. And I picture Jesus teaching, and he knows that they're going up on the roof, and he's smiling, thinking, they got it. And they go up on the roof in perseverance of their faith, and they start pulling apart the tiles on the roof. And they go to lower the man in. Now, how many of us, though, when we may, I mean, we can read this, and we know, if you've ever read this before, you know what's going to happen. But when we have faith that something's going to happen, and we encounter Let's not say a closed door, let's say a blocked path. Do we get a little frustrated in, in having to persevere, in having to wait, or having to figure out another way around that's not as convenient as the one we had anticipated or the one we had planned for, and, and we try to go a different way, it doesn't work, and so we just give up? Or maybe it's not you. Maybe you've known somebody who that's been the case. They've had great, they, what they thought was great faith about a situation. They encountered opposition and they stopped and went back. I've done that. I've done that. And I'll say right here that that is fake faith. Because fake faith is content with an attempt. Fake faith is content, is happy, is okay, is good with an attempt. That you're good with an attempt. The fake faith is there. You're okay. I feel like it's going to be good, but then difficulty comes, hardship comes, opposition comes, and it doesn't work out like we thought. And so in fake faith, then we just turn around and walk away because we think, well, at least I tried. At least I tried. I made an effort. Forgetting the wisdom of the great theologian Yoda, do or do not, there is no try. 
we, we, we make the attempt and we feel good. We feel like we checked the box because we tried. But great faith, big faith is in perseverance. If God gave us something and, and instructed us to do something and we step in faith, opposition doesn't stop us if the real faith is there. Because even though fake faith is content with an attempt, real faith trusts no matter how many attempts or how many unconventional attempts have to be made. If it's real faith... We're going to keep going until the thing happens. If God says go, we're going to go. Even if it's unconventional, even if we feel like it doesn't make any sense, even if it's just weird and everybody around us is going to think it's weird, if it's real, genuine, big faith, we're going to continue and try to figure out a a persevering way to make it happen because God wants it to happen. These guys put God on their heart to go in faith and bring this guy to Jesus for healing. And they weren't going to give up just because the path was blocked. Just because it was difficult, just because somebody was in the way, they weren't going to stop. They were going to persevere and find a way. Even if it meant paying that guy's roofing bill. Even if it meant being ridiculed by the community. They were going to persevere in faith in what they were stepping out to do. So they demonstrated their faith. Now look at verse 20. And when he saw their faith, this is Jesus, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven. First, I want to point out, it says he saw their faith. So what's implied is it's not just the four guys who have the faith, it's also the paralyzed man who has the faith. Jesus saw the faith of them. And he says to the man, the paralyzed man who's been lowered in front of him, man, your sins are forgiven. Now, when we look at other instances of Jesus doing healing, this, he doesn't really do it like this. A lot, you know, he gets there, he talks to a lot of them this way, but he doesn't do it this way every time. But he knows who's in the room. He knows the Pharisees are in the room. He knows the scribes are in the room. And Jesus does nothing by accident. And so before he gets to the man's physical issue, the man's need of healing, he looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. He's not implying that the man's sins led to him being paralyzed. That's not what he's doing here. He's simply dealing with the spiritual first. And he says, man, your sins are forgiven. And he says it both for the benefit of the man, the benefit of the four friends on the roof, the benefit of everyone in the house watching and hearing this. Your sins are forgiven. Knowing it would stir up a a, a theological, you know, issue, problem with those Pharisees and scribes who were there. Man, your sins are forgiven. And that led immediately to what the scribes and the Pharisees thought had passed through their mind in verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemes? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they're right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus is God. They don't get that. That's why they think he's blaspheming. He's standing in the place of God. Verse 22. Now, now notice, they're thinking this. this. They're not saying, they're thinking this. Verse 20, uh, where was I? 22. Jesus perceived their thoughts, and he answered them, Why do you ask, or why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He already knew what he was going to do. But he wanted to address a spiritual problem before he did it. And so he tells the guys, why are you thinking these thoughts? 
Why are you questioning God's ability in your heart? Which is easier to say, man, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Now, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can tell if the sins are forgiven. Nobody can tell that. It's harder to say rise and walk. If the man doesn't rise and walk, then Jesus doesn't have the power not only to make him rise and walk, but also to forgive his sins. And so Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and to prove it, I'm about to do something else. And so he asked that question, which is easier? He answered their thoughts, not their words, because they didn't have any words. Verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, notice, he, he addresses the Pharisees and the scribes first, so that you will know that the Son of Man, that's a title for the Messiah. That's a title for the coming Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man. That's from a prophecy in Old Testament Scripture. So that you may know that the Son of Man, he's calling himself the Messiah, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the man, and he tells him three things. Rise, pick up your bed, go home. I want you to look at what the man does here in this next verse. Verse 25. Immediately he rose before them, picked up what he had been lying on, went home, what? Glorifying God. Jesus told him to do three things. The man did four. He rose, he picked up his bed, he went home, and he glorified God. His faith extended beyond simple obedience and into public praise. He, he praised publicly. The man's faith led him to act, which led to his healing, which enabled his obedience, which demonstrated God's glorious power so that the man could praise. The man praised. The man worshiped. You see, when faith encounters Jesus through the unexpected, it finds praise. When faith finds Jesus through the unexpected, when faith experiences Jesus through an unexpected circumstance, and we find Jesus there and his presence there and his powers there, our instinctive reaction cannot be anything but praise. And so the man praises, the man runs and glorifies God as he goes. Now notice what's very interesting as I was reading this and studying this the other day. He says, all says he's glorifying God. So he, he's glorifying God. He's praising God. He's demonstrating God's power just through walking. But the scripture doesn't say what his praise looks like. It doesn't say what his praise looks like. It doesn't say if he's saying things, if he's screaming things, if he's singing things, if he's uh, you know, using sign language. It doesn't say. It just says he's glorifying God. He's praising God. He's worshiping God. Now, praise can be all of those things. Praise can be obedience. Praise can be music. Worship can be music. Worship can be how we speak to each other at lunch today. Worship can be anything if we're responding to God in the moment, worshiping God in how we live. It's not simply music. When we limit worship to just music, we're limiting what God can do through us. Worship is more than that. Music can enhance our encounter with Jesus, but, but it, it isn't simply Music. Worship is a lifestyle. Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 12, that, that worship is how we are to live, how we are to live our lives in a constant state of worship. So this man, that's probably why it doesn't define how he praises here. 
he goes and he praises. He glorifies God as he goes. And as he leaves, they make a path for him, this guy. He leaves the house. He's carrying his bed. He's praising God. He's glorifying God. And everyone is still in the house, including the Pharisees, including the scribes. Having just seen the miracle, having just heard the words that the man's sins are forgiven. Verse 26. Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Now, the the descripting words there, amazement and extraordinary, I think are tied together. Amazement seized them all. Everyone in the house just could not believe what what they saw. And so they glorified God in response to the man glorifying God in response to his healing. So they glorified God. They were filled with awe. We have seen extraordinary things today. One of the commentators I read said that human achievement could not explain what had happened. There was no explanation they had for what they had just experienced. A lot of times when we may see the miraculous or we may experience a miraculous encounter with Jesus or with God, we try to explain it away in in something that makes sense to our rational mind, trying to explain away God's movement and God's hand in our life. And they have nothing here for that. I mean, one moment the man's paralyzed. He's probably from the town, so a lot of them probably knew this guy. You know, so they knew that he was paralyzed. This wasn't play acting. And he was instantly healed and got up and walked, and they're just mouth on the floor. They just can't believe it. They saw it, but it blows them away. Have you ever been in a room when a doctor comes in after having run a test for somebody who's been sick for a very long time? And the prognosis has been terrible, and then there's been miraculous healing. Anybody ever been in a room when something's like that? And the, I have. And, and the doctor comes in, and uh, sometimes the doctor's a believer, and, and he'll use the M word, a miracle. But there's, many, there's been several times I've been in the room, and the doctor's not. And he goes, I don't know what happened. Cancer was there last week when we did the scan, but it's not there today. He says, I don't know. I, it's gone. Same scan. It's just gone. And he had no way to explain what had happened. But we said, oh, we know what happened. We we know exactly what happened. God took it away. It's gone. It's completely gone. God did it. So these people are in awe, this extraordinary thing, this amazing thing, and they can't believe what's happened. But notice the crowd merely saw the extraordinary. They just saw it. The four friends and the man experienced the extraordinary. They participated in the extraordinary. There's a difference between simple observance and participation in something. And my prayer for for me, for my family, for our church that I pray all the time is that we would not merely see God do something. We would participate in the midst of his powerful movement here in Dequeen because he wants it to happen here. He wants people to be saved here. He wants families to be healed here. And my prayer is that we would be a participant in it and not mere observers of it. And so participating in what God is doing is key. And so we have to participate in the extraordinary with persevering faith. If we don't have persevering faith, then obstacles are going to come up, and they will come up every single time. Distractions will come up every single time. Blocked paths will come up even on occasion, close doors, and it will come to the point of, do I, does my faith have enough perseverance 
to keep going. Or use the King James word, steadfastness, to keep going. Am I willing to keep my pace and moving forward in faith even when it doesn't make any sense, even when I've got a whole host of voices saying, stop, stop, faith. You know, in the book of James, Jesus' brother wrote this book. And he, he's writing to Christians. And I've got it here for you on the screen. This is in James 2, starting in verse 14. He's saying we can have faith all we want, but if our lives don't back up our faith, if our actions don't back up our faith, if our works don't back up our faith, then it's not real faith. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then James gives an, gives an illustration. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, the problem, and leave that verse up there for a sec, Micah, is in that verse, that word works carries with it a lot of preconceived notion. Because uh, we've heard that word used in a lot of different ways, like salvation by works. But that's not what he's talking about. Because you know what the literal translation of that word is? It's action. Action. It's not works. It can mean works as in action. But I think because we take so much of our thinking about the word works and we apply it to that verse that even though we know he's talking about believing in faith and backing it up with action, that the, the translation can mess us up because our minds are, as we talked about what last week or the week before, our minds um, come uh, uh, from a place of sin as this world is. And, and the enemy wants to confuse us with Scripture, wants to confuse us. If, if we know we're supposed to go to Scripture when we're in trouble and then he wants to take Scripture, the enemy does, take Scripture and confuse us with it. And so we need to understand that this word works has nothing to do with earning salvation by works. This word works here means action, that your action should back up your lifestyle, your belief system. So did I put it in there, Micah, with the word action? I think I did. The next little section, verse 14. We're going to read verses 14, and then we're going to jump down to verse 17 with that word action in there. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he does not have action. Can that faith save him? Jump down to verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have action, is dead. Faith without action is dead. Action has to be there in order for it to be alive. If action is not there, then is the faith really there? Jesus said, by your fruits you will know them. Does your fruit, does your action back up what you say your faith is? That doesn't mean that we can judge somebody else and say, oh, I don't see any fruit on them. They must not be a believer. That's not why Jesus said that verse. I know that's the way a lot of people use that verse, but that's not the way Jesus meant it. He meant it for me. He meant it for you personally to inspect. Am I, is my fruit in production here? Does my faith have action? When I come in, in, into opposition, when I come into a blocked path, when I come into an occupied doorway, is that the end of my faith? Am I content with the attempt at what God told me to do, or am I willing to persevere and do what he told me to do, irregardless of how unconventional it may be that this thing comes about? 
Faith without action isn't really faith because faith gives life. Faith gives life. Eternal life, but also life daily. Faith gives life because faith is action. Faith is the beating of a spiritual heart bringing action into physical limbs, into spiritual activity. But a lot of times... When, when God may tell us to do something and give us instruction and, and give us a direction and something to do and, and, and we feel like we know we need to do this thing and it's a step of faith like we've been talking about this series, today's part four, we, we take a big step of faith into what God has. We may have these voices that come into our mind that say, oh yeah, that's good, it's great, but that's not really going to work. You know, somebody may say that to us. We, we, we express our heart. We finally get up the courage to tell somebody what God's been laying on us, the faith that this thing takes, and they say, yeah, that's fantastic. God told you that. But there's this thing and this thing and this thing. But you've got your past, but you've got your financial situation. But there's so many logistics and practical elements that have no sense of how this is going to get pulled off. And they put that, the way I'm picturing it, it's like a hook. They stick us with this hook, this butt phrase. They, they're calling them butt people. They stick us with these hooks. And, and then we take those ideas and it begins to, to cement in our own minds. And our minds, with the enemy's help, begins to speak those words into us constantly. And we're in these arguments, these mental arguments in our heads saying, yeah, but God told me to do this, but that doesn't, isn't going to work. Yeah, but I need to do this. Yeah, but that's not going to work because of this, because those people think that you're this. But if you do that, this is going to happen. But if you do that, this is going to happen. But if you go over here, there's not enough money to make that happen. But this person over here is just bombarding your email inbox with how is this going to be possible and what's going to happen here and where are you going to go here? It's the people like that, the Pharisees. <laughs> they saw the faith of these guys just like everybody else in the house saw the faith of these guys. And what did they do? Jesus said it. He said they questioned. But they weren't questioning the faith of the man. Ultimately, what were they doing? They were questioning God. They were questioning what God was going to do in a disbelieving fashion. God's not going to do that. Uh-uh. God doesn't have the power to do that. God's not strong enough to do that. God's not able to do that. That's the, the root of what they were doing here. These Pharisees, these but people, they were questioning what God is capable of accomplishing. And so Jesus asked that question then, that, uh, or made that statement, I'm going to forgive his sins and I'm going to heal him, just to blow your minds extra today. When it comes to our own selves and what we are going to do and what God has called us to do, and some of you I know because I had conversations with you this week. I know some of you in the room, and I know you're watching online. God's told you to do something, and you've been holding back because of the but voices that have taken root in your head. And, you, and so you're not, maybe you stepped a little in, in, in a little step, but you know God told you to step out here, and you haven't done it yet because you're scared because of those voices that are there. Those voices just won't stop. Maybe some of you, I wasn't going to go here. Maybe some of you know you need to be giving something to God more than what you're giving now financially. And you're not willing to do it because it scares the fire out of you. Well, where's the faith? Where's, I can, man, there were months, Katie and I, before we had kids, more so now. But I know there was no way we should have been able to tithe. Zero. 
it got to the point of we either have health insurance or we give to God. Almost to the, we were working for the church. Well, the church isn't going to give our health insurance, so we, that'll just be our tithe, buying our health insurance. But, the, but in that moment, that thought, no, we are going to give to God no matter what. And you know what happened? The money was there. The money, more money was there to pay for the health insurance than we had given to God in tithe. It didn't make sense. Excel did not have a formula for that one. But God did it because of faith. Faith can accomplish what we can accomplish. Faith got this man healed. Doctor said, no, not going to happen. People weren't going to let this guy in. Maybe they were knocking, patting, you know, shoulders saying, let us in. We want to get our friend healed. And maybe people were saying, yeah, no, he's too far gone. There's no way you're getting in here. I want to keep hearing with Jesus. This guy's a lost cause. We're going to keep staying where we're at. And these guys persevered in faith. And everyone saw the healing that day, saw the miracle that day. But the four friends and the, the guy who was paralyzed participated in the miracle because of the healing. And so think about your own life. Where is an area of your life that needs action, that needs faith? Now, you might be thinking, well, I know of so-and-so, and I know they say they have faith, and they're not acting in faith, and if they would only act in faith, then everything would be good in their life. You may be thinking of somebody you, you know who they needs to hear that, or maybe you're thinking, if only the government would do this and that and the other thing, and, and, and you're thinking, this would be a good word if they would just act and do what God wants them to do, but the word isn't for them, the word is for you. If you start thinking that way, you know what that is? That's the enemy trying to distract you. That's the enemy trying to distract you, to get it off of what God wants to do in you, to do in you, to do in you. If some of you nudged your spouse while we're doing this, then maybe it's in you too. Or if some of you text somebody, you do need to text somebody and say, man, God gave me a word, not through the preacher, but through the scripture, and point them to this scripture. But if you're pointing your finger to other people, you're missing what God has for you, because God's already got somebody who's supposed to tell other people in that way. His name's the Holy Spirit. Don't be somebody's butt person, somebody's Pharisee. That's a, <laughs> that is a bad place to be. You know the last one who tried to take the Holy or He wasn't even the last one. He was the first one who tried to take the Holy Spirit's job. You know what his name was? Satan. He tried to be God. That didn't work out too well for him. Now, that doesn't give you permission if your spouse was nudging you during this section to say to your spouse, well, you're Satan. This preacher just said it. That's not what I'm talking about. You need to be what God has called you to be. Listen to what God is saying to you specifically. What is God speaking to you? We're talking about you, just like Jesus here in the moment. He's talking about the individual there. What's an area in your life that needs action? What's an area of your life that needs faith that is followed by action? That's the, the, the action is the follow-through of the faith. The faith kicks it off. The faith starts it. The action demonstrates it in perseverance. Maybe you have been persevering, and you're saying, Preacher, you don't even know I've been going at this thing for so long. Well, maybe going at it for so long, you've been doing it for 5,999 times, and it's number 6,000 that's going to kick you over the mark, and it's time to step up in perseverance and do what God's called you to do so we can see in big faith, big changes take place. 
Not political changes. That'll come. That's the, we don't want to go there first because that's the tail wagging the dog. We've got to get to the heart of the matter first, and that is Jesus. We need Jesus. That's where it starts. That's where the healing begins. That's how the drug culture is going to get out is because of Jesus. That's how racism is going to be eradicated because of Jesus. It's going to be with Jesus. That's where it goes. That's where it starts. That's where it's got to be. It can't be all this other mess. We get lost in the minutia when it's all about Jesus. Pointing to Jesus. And, and those phrases, those arguments that we bring into our mind, the constant negativity saying, okay, I hear all of that, and I know God can do big things. I've even experienced God do big things, but the reality is, this is I'm not saying this is what really is happening. This is what's going on in our minds. Honestly, this has happened in my mind this week, but the reality is, yeah, that's not going to happen because in order for that to happen, these five people need to completely change their mindset. Otherwise, this isn't going to be even possible. But God says, uh, hang on a sec. Who created those minds? Let's come back over here. What did I tell you to do? But what I tend to do is, uh, and maybe it's not you, but those negative voices get, get, my faith can get lost in the negative voices just shouting down, and I have those arguments. Well, but God said this, and God said that, and God said this. Well, God gave me something this week. I, I was going to share this in like three weeks at a future one of these big faith deals because I'm going to try it for a little longer. But um, who's tired of the negativity and, and the anger that's always everywhere? Well, the thing is, guys, as I said earlier in my prayer, if we have Jesus, then we've got joy. And if the joy is not on display in us, maybe the Jesus is not on display in us. And so what I began to do this week, this is just a practical step. Maybe this isn't for you, but I'm just going to be, I wrote it in my uh, uh, spiritual journal this week. Um, what I began to do is I began to, every time I'd have one of those thoughts, every, every time, sometimes it was a lot, I would start to just praise God, like this man. I would just praise God. But I, had, I would go back to the basics, the fundamentals, the foundation. I always remember, it's a great basketball movie. I had a coach tell me one time, go watch that movie and do every drill the guy does in there to perfection, and you'll be the best basketball player in the world. The movie's called Pistol Pete. You go, if you want to be a basketball player, you need to watch that movie. Um, but the, there's a coach in there who's got a basketball, and he takes a Sharpie, and he hits the Sharpie on the basketball, and he says, uh, or no, he, he takes the basketball first, and he says, this basketball represents everything there is to know about basketball. And he puts that Sharpie on there, and he says, that dot represents everything you know about the game. <laughs> Typical coach. But my thinking is, I've got to go back to the fundamentals, to the very baseline. And so what I began to do is praise God for my salvation. I didn't go beyond it. I just started, I just, I tell you, and I think it's been since Tuesday. Every time, negative thought, every time that voice of, argument or disagreement, every time one of those emails would come, and I'd want to, you don't even talk about Jesus said this, and Jesus said this, and you're not saved, and bleh. you know, every time, I would just stop and praise God for my salvation, because maybe you're way more spiritual than I am, but what I discovered is I have taken my salvation for granted, 
just, oh, I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. I'm, I'm saved. I'm good. Let's move on to something more deep, something bigger. Let's dive into Romans 7, 8, and 9. Let's just camp out there and live there and only talk predestination and free will and talk the big theological words and all those big books and junk and whatever and all those diplomas in the closet, whatever. Do it all. That's, that's what you need to be doing. But we do, I, I have come to believe, I believe that's a tool of the enemy. That if we're not at the base level praising God for our salvation, then we're allowing the enemy to hijack what God put us on this earth to do. And so we get distracted by all this other stuff that doesn't matter eternally. In 150 years, we're all dead. And none of that matters. And we will be praising Jesus for our salvation. So why not start now? And so that's my challenge to you. I wasn't going to do this, but that's my challenge to you. In faith, when those words of, yeah, but, that's not what you need to be doing, come into your mind. When any word of negativity comes into your mind, praise Jesus for your salvation this week. See how that changes your demeanor. See how that changes the demeanor of those around you. <laughs> it hadn't failed one time since Tuesday. Every single time. The anxiety left every time. Every single time, the argument completely just dissipated, like flatlined in my head. Every time, there was peace. Every time, there was comfort. And every time, there was the ability to stand up and step in faith. Because we have to stand on something, and what can we stand on but our salvation? That's where it starts. And so sometimes what we have to do is tear down all that other mess that's bombarding our brains and, and corrupting who God designed us to be and just praise him, glorify him like this guy for our spiritual healing. And so where do you need to step in faith? Maybe that's your first faith your first faith step is to praise him for your salvation. Praise him for your salvation. Praise him for your salvation. Start baseline right there and then move on. What has he been telling you to do? The faith step you need to be doing, but you've been allowing all the butt voices on all the butt people to pull you away from where God wants you to be. Just believe him. Hear his voice. Make all those other voices go away and just listen to his. Because this week could be a defining week for you. It could change everything. Things that have been building, right? Things that have been building could change this week. Yes, in a powerful way. Powerful way. Maybe right now what you need to do is you need to put action to your faith. And God's been convicting you as we've been talking about this while we've been talking about this scripture, about the specific thing you need to take action on. Maybe the action you need to take is salvation itself. Maybe you don't have something to praise God for because you haven't been saved. All you have to do is believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And that's salvation. That's it. There's no amount of bad stuff you can do tomorrow that can undo the salvation he gives you today because you're not more powerful than Jesus. His death and resurrection is more powerful than anything I could do tomorrow, anything I could do this afternoon. And so I can rest assured that I've got that salvation. And in that assurance, 
That back when we had hymn books, what is it? That blessed assurance. I can praise him. So what's your faith step in action you need to step on today? Is it salvation? Will you this week with me, join me in praising God every time, every time one of those thoughts comes, every time the enemy brings something, every time. Maybe your source of negativity is living in your house. Every time that comes, praise him for your salvation. Praise him for your salvation. Praise him for your salvation. And watch what happens. When you change the fundamentals of the way you think, your life is going to change forever.